thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hello and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, famously known as Denver's Diet Doctor. For those of you that don't know, Jeff is a board-certified family physician who has been providing personalized healthcare since 1993 with an emphasis on longevity, wellness, and prevention. Today, Jeff and I cover some fascinating topics including cholesterol, insulin, inflammation, oxidative stress, and metabolic disease. I'm really looking forward to us all learning from Jeff today. Hi there, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steph. It's a pleasure. Very good. I see um, you have been in Australia recently. So before we hear a little bit about that, just tell us um, or share your story in terms of your background and what you're up to these days. Yes, Steph. So Again, I'm a family physician, and I've been at it for almost 30 years now, coming up on 30 years. Uh, But I became enlightened uh, after the first 10 years of of doctoring, just realizing that uh, our approach was to put out fires rather than prevent the fires when it comes to chronic disease, and really struggled with traditional uh, nutrition guidelines. And um, I, I really have to thank my patients back then, and, and this is, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, there were some challenges from my family members. I had some of my own personal health issues, probably some uh, insulin issues, some weight issues, and um, these all kind of coalesced, and I started to do my homework about um, redefining nutrition and realized that we had uh, gotten it gotten it wrong and uh, to take on this whole new approach, uh, looking at whole foods and metabolic disease and realizing that uh, calories aren't the same, all calories are not alike. And this old model of just eating less and exercising more um, was just a big failure. And uh, now in the last almost 20 years, we've uh, been a approaching uh, our patient's health using um, the low-carb uh, approach using whole foods. And it's just been it's wonderful for, for myself and my patients. So that's a brief history. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk to you more about that. Um, but just tell us what you were doing in Australia recently. Yeah, so um, I've been getting involved with conferences trying to help um, educate uh, the general public and more importantly, healthcare professionals. And uh, I'm really good friends with Dr. Rod Taylor. In fact, we we co-organized some of the uh, conferences here in Colorado, the the ski conferences in um, uh, right in my backyard. So it's really easy for me. But Rod invited me in September to uh, to speak in um, in uh, Australia, all over Australia. So 
Um, we were up in Port Douglas, uh, in Melbourne, uh, in Brisbane, and my daughter was also doing a um, um, a semester abroad in New Zealand, so I got time to to spend with her, and I I met uh, all the all the uh, the group up in uh, at uh, what is it AUT in Auckland, mm. Catherine Crofts and Grant Schofield. So it was just a great trip, and I. I surely hope to come back. You guys have a wonderful country. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, it's good to see you um, spreading your knowledge and certainly spreading the LCHF message uh, far and wide. So I did, I love the way um, you mentioned that you became enlightened after 10 years of practicing. And, you know, this is one of my favorite topics to touch on because I think it must have been so fascinating for you nearly 20 years ago to have been having those conversations, you know, just briefly, how challenging was it? And what have you faced um, over that time? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's been actually pretty straightforward for us um, that, you know, if we can document that a patient has a benefit to any type of intervention, whether it's a lifestyle modification or, or, or even medication for that matter, if we can just document that there's a benefit, um, you know, things work pretty smoothly for us. And, and so patients had initially come to me st- stating that, uh, oh, I had heard about this, this, this particular diet that was lower in carbohydrate and, and, and higher in natural fats. And I said, well, you know, that may affect your c- cholesterol adversely. And I think a lot of us tend to be open-minded these days and thinking outside the box. And I said, well, you know, let's follow your metabolic markers. And back then, to my surprise, we actually saw metabolic markers. So the, the cholesterol actually changed in a favorable way for the majority of people. So the ratios uh, that we use as a measurement today to look at uh, metabolic health and nutritional status, such as, you know, the triglycerides, uh, they, they went down, the HDL went up, and we look for a ratio um, um, of two to one using uh, units in America, of course. Um, L- and even the, the LDL cholesterol had gone down and things like insulin, HbA1c, CRP, other inflammatory, inflammatory markers improved. And so I started doing my homework and had discovered uh, the metabolic syndrome that um, was was originally called the syndrome X by Dr. Jerry Reven uh, back in the, um, the 1980s, I believe. And <clears throat> it really was enlightening to me because it really... Um, to find a, a root cause for lots of chronic diseases. So basically, hormonal dysregulation is an explanation for things such as overweight, obesity, prediabetes, diabetes, heart disease, premature aging, arthritis, um, even cancer, dementia. The list just goes on and on. And so, therefore, it brings us back to nutrition. And it's, it's a funny thing that most doctors clearly know about syndrome X, they clearly know about uh, the metabolic syndrome, but they don't know what to do with it. And the sad truth is that it is a nutritional syndrome. It's a nutritional condition. And, it, and it's, it's not the first line of treatment isn't medication. It's really nutrition. And 
that really ex- explains why it's not so popular in the mainstream. Interesting. I think, though, you know, you say that there is that awareness, but do you think that it's their training wasn't in that area, so they don't know to look outside of that, perhaps? Very, oh, very much so. Mm. I, I mean, you actually said a mouthful without realizing it, but doctors were just not trained in nutrition. Mm. Um, you know, we're again, we're busy putting out fires, and modern medicine is, is wonderful. Um, um, it, it certainly keeps people alive. And if you're, if you're rather ill, you know, you want to go to a doctor that, that knows modern medicine, but when it comes to prevention, that's where, you know, modern medicine is really lacking and doctors in their training just really didn't have time to focus because they were so busy, you know, again, just saving lives. And so, you know, all that doctors knew was this basic, simple advice that, <clears throat> you know, ob- obesity, for instance, is just a disease of um, of energy excess. It's that simple. And you eat less, you exercise more, and you just reduce calories. And since saturate, you know, with since fat has uh, a higher caloric density. Uh, nine kcals per gram versus uh, protein and carbohydrate, which is four kcals per gram. It, it would therefore make sense. Well, you just, you know, eliminate the caloric dense macronutrient um, saturated fat, so you get to you'll make you consume less calories. Calories, and and while you're at it, we also believe that saturated fat, in particular, is, you know, a root cause of um, heart disease, and. <laughs> Yeah, and you basically these were the, the the simple concepts of reducing saturated fat to lose weight and to reduce your risk of heart disease. It was beautiful. It for the, back in the time it it all it all fit together. But now what we've come to understand is that it's much more complicated than that. It's just it's just a simple explanation that that um, doesn't account for hormonal dysregulation. Now understand we don't defy the rules of physics. I mean, the first law of thermodynamics applies throughout. It's just, it's more complicated than just the simple energy balance equation. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, wonderful that we finally landed there, although it's, it's still taking time to change across the board. So in terms of your thoughts on cholesterol and how that relates to heart disease, can you give us a little bit of a summary there and then talk more about insulin in that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's fun to look back in history and we really have to go back to the to the 19 the 1940s and the 1950s and and look, um it was post World War II and we were really in in the United States. It was a t- it was a time of plenty. It was a time of excess, and, and it was growth. And at the same time, there was a rise in the occurrence of um, you know heart attack. And um, we wanted to find out a cause, and and so there was developing technology, specifically looking at cholesterol and lipoprotein subfractions, and the father of, of uh, the lipoprotein um, subfractions was John Goffin. And uh, he really 
um, identified these subfractions, I think back in the 1940s and the 1950s. And then at the same time, we have um, uh, the Framingham Heart Study that was uh, being initiated at this time. And also, we're all familiar with Ansel Keys, who is now looking at this um, diet heart hypothesis. And he was now collaborating with the with all the lipoprotein experts, John Goffman in particular. And there was this whole theory now that perhaps um, lipoprotein and cholesterol had something to do with heart disease. You go back 100 years and they had discovered that these fatty streaks were observed in the blood vessel wall containing cholesterol. So, you know, that was one of the um, initial observations that pointed to the fact that it must be cholesterol that's the problem. And so out of this, in particular, I think, developed the Framingham Heart Study. And what they did was it was it was just an epidemiologist epidemiology study looking at um, associations between heart disease and what they observed in, in, in the Framingham population. And they looked at things such as hypertension, smoking, you, your sex, um, of course, your cholesterol, and, and, and they actually looked at diabetes. But um, what they called these were, were risk factors. And that was a term that was um, coined by the Framingham Heart Study itself. But when you actually look at it, they, although diabetes was in there as a risk factor, it was buried. And the emphasis again was on cholesterol. And this is over uh, a half a century. And it really just misses the mark because when you're looking at just simply the bad cholesterol, the problem with the Framingham Heart Study and, and, and all the risk calculators that come out today, they're simply addressing bad cholesterol. And they're saying that cholesterol is innately toxic. And you have to realize that you know, cholesterol is a, is a very critical substance. Um, it's important for brain function. It's a substrate to hormones. You basically can't live without it. And when you look at cholesterol that's within lipoprotein, lipoprotein serves a simple function to basically transport energy throughout the body. And the energy, it's fat-soluble energy in particular. Of course, the blood is water-based. So you need this lipoprotein molecule that enables you to transport fat-soluble substances in a water-based system. So it's amazing, you know, that what lipoprotein does. It also transports minerals, nutrients, and other substances throughout the body. So what, unfortunately, what's come out of Framingham Heart was to vilify saturated fat, lipoprotein, and cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't address metabolic health. It doesn't address uh, insulin. It doesn't address metabolic syndrome. It doesn't address hyperinsulinemia, which was made famous by Dr. Kraft as a gentleman, a doctor that Ivor Cummings and I had an inter an, uh, the opportunity to interview several years back. And so it really misses the mark. 
Metabolic syndrome, on the other hand, when, when you look at the criteria that defines the metabolic syndrome, it actually looks at lipoprotein, but in a different context. Um, there's four or five criteria to define um, metabolic syndrome. And guess what? It doesn't include looking at the LDL cholesterol. It looks at triglyceride to HDL ratios. It looks at insulin. It looks at glucose. And so, unfortunately, this idea of vilifying cholesterol lipoprotein has just moved forward to present day. And we can talk about present day. There's a new class of drugs, the PCSK9 inhibitors. And it, again, it's all based on this premise dating back to the 1940s and 50s that cholesterol is innately toxic and we need to lower it as as low as it can go. Mm. And mm. We, we find that there's a lot of problems with the new P PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, there was a study that um, just was reported uh, this year stating that, uh, you know, again, oh, there's, there's, there's so much benefit. We, we found that it, it reduced the, the number of events. But, of course, they're afraid to say when you dig into the data that it, it didn't improve mortality at all. In fact, it was even leaning towards uh, it having a negative effect on mortality. On top of that, Pfizer was working on their PCSK9 drug, their, block bluster, uh, their blockbuster drug, and they had to pull it off the market because uh, they, they, they were not showing any benefit. And so we, we always challenged the lipo, you know, this diet heart hypothesis and even the lipid hypothesis that you could use medication to, to lower cholesterol. It never made a whole lot of sense to me uh, until I started doing my homework. And so we now focus on, um, you know, in particular, like you said, you know, insulin, which is one way to measure um, metabolic health. Um, and it, it's, it seems when you look at literature properly these days, that insulin seems to be much more associated with heart disease risk than lipoprotein. And when you actually look at studies, and we need to see more studies comparing insulin to, to, to say, the bad cholesterol. And when you compare those studies, you can see that actually tracking insulin seems to correlate more with cardiovascular risk then just looking at the LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think really great that there's obviously conversation happening and the link to metabolic syndrome is obviously pretty clear when we talk about the hormone insulin. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. Um, in fact, um, we, we use some other tests. So, you know, the question is patients come to see us and they really want to uh, address their cardio, you know, their, their heart status, you know, am I at risk? And so we've, we've explained to them that, you know, using the risk calculators to predict your risk of, you know, a lifetime risk of an, of a cardiovascular event or your, your 10 year risk of, a, of an event. When you pull those calculators, the best they can do is say that, you, you know, your risk over 10 years might, might double. But when you start to look at insulin, um, and again, and we talked about how it's more tightly tied with cardiovascular risk, you can see that the association becomes more significant. But there's another great tool out there 
um, specifically cardiovascular imaging. One that we like is the um, the calcium scan of the heart. It's a CT scan of the heart. It uses a little bit of radiation, and basically you have the um, you need some advanced technology to look at the tiny coronary arteries in the heart that's beating. And so they have a gated CAT scan machine that can actually measure calcium in the blood vessels. So calcium is within the plaque. Now it's true that you can't see soft plaque, but soft plaque is basically under the calcium. And as the calcium builds, you know that there's soft plaque building underneath. And so the calcium scan has been actually around since the 1980s. And I can tell you as, as a GP, as a primary care doctor, we thought that it was just a test to feed patients to the cardiologist, Steph. But what we've come to learn since we've read about it is it really is probably the single best tool out there to predict cardiovascular risk. So you can measure calcium from having a perfect score of zero to a calcium score of in the thousands. And the, the risk when you're specifically looking at your chance of having events, not just cardiovascular disease in general, but looking at hard, hard events, um, the difference is an order of magnitude compared to, remember I said, you know, you use the, the risk calculators, they could show that your risk will double. And um, it's just a wonderful tool that we've been using more and more uh, over the, uh, the past several years. And there's a great documentary called The Widowmaker Movie that uh, is produced by uh, David Bobbitt, who is a, a businessman in Dublin, and he's actually funding uh, a new book that um, Ivor Cummins, the fat emperor, and I are working on. And the book is based on all the things that uh, we're talking about now, a lot of the things that the fat emperor talks about, and um, also some of the concepts from uh, the movie, uh, also talking about the calcium scan. So we're excited about the book that um, if all goes well, it'll be out the, um, the end of this year. Oh, very exciting. I look forward to reading more. So on the calcium score then, what are the limitations? Like why aren't we seeing this being used to diagnose heart disease or sorry, cardiovascular disease risk? Yeah, well, it it's it in 2013 it finally uh, was placed into the guidelines. Mm. So prior to that, there was a lot of resistance for a lot of reasons, very political. And you can um, the documentaries online, you can watch the docu- documentary, and they talk about all the political reasons that there was a lot of resistance to it. Right. And so, right. you know, in 2013, it's now in the guidelines, and you know. We also note that um, all U.S. presidents and astronauts now get the calcium scan. And it's an argument to say, well, why shouldn't we all have access to it? But in the United States, um, the insurance companies still don't even pay for the test. Now, it's it's only $100. We have several facilities down the street from our office. And so our patients are, are, are happy to pay out of pocket to get this very important test. But... Most primary care doctors don't really understand how powerful it is, and 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 that's true, probably worldwide. And so, one of the things that we want to do is to educate primary care doctors, GPs, about the power of the calcium s- scan, and and how to 
properly address cardiovascular risk. And so one of the things that we're doing, at least in the States, are offering educational credits to healthcare professionals to entice them to come to these conferences. Um, now, we it's fun to preach to the choir, but we would love to develop these conferences even more where we, we would have uh, some of the skeptics attend these conferences and we could share the data uh, based on the data about everything that we're talking about. And um, we're just going to keep plugging away. And um, I, I love the idea of teaching healthcare professionals. Yeah, I can absolutely yeah. agree, especially for people that are, you know, they perhaps have a blood test that is going to appear fearful, for example, if we still see things like, you know, total cholesterol on its own being discussed. Like at least in Australia, if your cholesterol is over six, you're still given an asterisk. And, you know, unfortunately, if you're in front of a doctor that hasn't retrained, you will have the fear of God put in you that that total cholesterol is a disease risk predictor. And that can be really hard for people, even educated people, to hear. So I think, you know, anyone that's getting that sort of a pathology result, um, you know, absolutely needs to get their calcium score because, you know, often you'll find, as expected, that, you know, the total cholesterol on its own is, you know, not going to be indicative like a calcium score will be. Right. Exactly. Well, it's the same way in the United States. You mm. know, you, you, the bad mm. cholesterol is flagged and, you know, the, the doctor will have a talk with you. And so, you know, you still have to pay attention to all the numbers. And the idea here is if you can't make a lifestyle modification, you know, the, the, the traditional principles of lowering cholesterol, going on a low fat, low calorie diet, I mean, they're just going to basically end up pushing and pumping medicine into you. And if you can't comply with any kind of lifestyle change, well, you know, that's probably the best that modern medicine can offer. And what we're simply suggesting is that there's another way to approach this, that it's, it's not, it's not a model where you're just, you know, using medications to lower numbers, you know, these, these associated factors were actually trying to address the root cause. And what's interesting is the uh, American Heart Association just came out with a report, uh, I think it was a month or two ago, stating that um, the prevalence of um, heart disease is on a rise uh, much greater than they predicted. And I, I can't remember the particular numbers, but th their comment is we're not doing uh, a very good job at preventing heart disease. Now the cardiac, you know, the heart associations will boast and, and rightly so that they've done a great job treating um, the complications, what we call morbidity and mortality. So, you know, we have to thank um, the emergency medical system, um, the intensive care units, the, the, the heart units that do a great job of keeping you alive if you have an event. But what's really important is reducing prevalence, uh, the incidence, the occurrence of disease. And this report is a, is, a, is a really significant report because 
it's very hard to report prevalence data. And yet they did. And they said, we're doing a, a terrible job. And <clears throat> I think what we're suggesting is that we have some answers as to why it hasn't gone so well. And so, you know, the doctor can just try to lower people's cholesterols and try to put them on a low-fat, low-calorie diet. But we've been doing that for over a half a century, Steph, and it's obviously not working. And the American Heart Association agrees. Yeah, that is a really important step in the right direction. So, yeah, really, really good to see. I think certainly um, I just wanted to explore the calcium scores a um, touch more. So obviously the score of zero is a less than 1% risk. Um, is You tell me, what is the sort of first line of treatment that you give for a higher calcium score? Right. So, yes, uh, let's talk about calcium score. So a zero score is a perfect score. And as you said, your risk of your 10 year risk of having an event is is less than one percent. Uh, there's a study that even says that um, um, you get a 15-year warranty that you basically won't have an event or drop dead. Um, having a zero score is also um, associated with decreased all-cause all mortality. So it, it, the, the calcium score goes beyond just heart health. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so – uh, basically, they stratify the score between, um, um, I think it's uh, 0 and 10, 10 and 100. Um, and, yeah, so uh, greater than uh, 400, um, your risk uh, jumps. And then over 1,000, it jumps even uh, more to uh, having a 37% chance of having an event in 10 years. And so... What you have to understand is that regardless of your calcium score, it's not uh, a test that tells you you have to run off to the cardiologist and go get a stent and a, and a heart catheterization. Um, really, those – or even bypass surgery. Those are procedures for patients with symptoms. And what's important to understand is that the calcium scan, the calcium score is a test for prevention and in patients that are asymptomatic. And so, you know, the approach is addressing cardiovascular disease as an inflammatory disease. And basically, the calcium, the plaque, is the cardiovascular equivalent of hyperinsulinemia or metabolic disease. You're actually seeing the disease process itself. And the goal is to stabilize plaque and calcium. Now, some have reported that you can actually see calcium reduce, but when you actually look at the literature, stabilizing calcium is the long-term goal. And we think it's a nutritional dietary approach. And so natural fats, saturated fats, because of molecular structure, are metabolically stable. And the problem are these um, highly industrialized uh, vegetable oils, canola, corn, and soy. And these are the oils that, based on framing heart study and what Ansel Keys was telling us, well, they were the bad fats. Now, it's true if you take, if you consume more polyunsaturated fats than saturated fat, it lowers LDL cholesterol, but actually it increases inflammatory markers. Um, actually, it increases events. When, when you look at um, uh, the, the Lyon study, there are a couple Mediterranean type of uh, studies over the years that actually looked at, uh, you, you know, su substitutions 
and they they found that the the vegetable oils actually did worse for patients. So it's this nutritional approach where you you cut out the industrial vegetable oils, you cut out uh, the other processed foods that tend to have sugars, grains, starches in it, and you're addressing metabolic health and the inflammatory component of heart disease in this way. Now, you still with me, Stephanie? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just wanted to make sure we didn't lose the connection. But you do have to seriously think about things perhaps a little differently the higher the calcium score. And I think with patients who have a score over 400, the literature really demonstrates, and I agree, that you have to consider them uh, a a cardiac risk equivalent, meaning um, patients who have a score higher than 400 you have to treat them as if they've already had a cardiac event. And um, there is some literature uh, to demonstrate that there is a mortality benefit uh, giving statins to uh, patients who have already had an event. And so if we're saying these um, patients with a high score over 400 have had an event, we actually do have the conversation about statins with the patient along with a whole foods diet. And so long-term, the goal is to stabilize calcium. So we see patients that come in with actually really high scores. And is all hope lost? And the answer is no, because you can track uh, the calcium score um, over a two- to three-year period. You have to consider a little bit of radiation when you do the test. And if you, if you find that the calcium, particularly the volume, uh, there's there's two different ways to measure cal- calcium, both density and volume. But if you stabilize the volume score, that is the progression is less than 15% a year, um, that greatly reduces risk long term. In fact, stabilizing calcium in this way reduces the risk in the patient in a similar way to individuals that actually had a zero score. So again, the calcium score is very powerful and more primary care doctors need to know how to use it properly in the setting of prevention. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, obviously there's a case or, you know, some cases where statins might be necessary, but I think, you know, the more we rely on the calcium score, the, the less we'll see the gross overprescription of statins, particularly in people um, I think in um, the US, it's 50% of people that would otherwise have been given statins have a calcium score of zero. So they definitely didn't need to have that pharmaceutical intervention. Well, there, there is a study actually, that, um, I think it was last year, that, um, that noted that uh, if a patient's on a statin and has a zero score, they don't need a statin. There's mm-hmm. no benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for yeah. other reasons, there's no benefit. But that just really supports what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. So just for um, our listeners that might be interested, is it just a simple matter of going to your doctor and getting a referral to radiology for a calcium score? Is that, are you aware in, at least in Australia? Um, yeah, well, actually, when, when we were in Brisbane, uh, we, we were talking about that uh, and, and uh, it, I know here in the States, you, you can just 
go in and get a calcium score. You don't need a prescription. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. And so I, I don't remember quite how it was, how it is in Australia. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, but, um, I mean, it's just a simple, uh, matter of just asking your your doctor for uh an order to get a a calcium scan and you're going to be paying out of your pocket anyway yeah yeah right i'm i'm pretty confident in australia that you do need a referral like a lot of the imaging places or the you know the radiology companies do require that for you to make a booking so certainly yeah just to our just for our listeners just um speak with your primary care practitioner and then they can obviously help you um with you know the right avenue to organize your testing is your health care yes is your health care um your public system is it medicare is that what it's called yeah it is so the calcium score is 250 dollars, and there's no medicare rebate available um but if you're working with a health or a heart care specialist um you know in certain situations they definitely can be at, at no cost to the patient right Mm. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. often some confusion, by the way, because, you know, Medicare in the United States is for people over age 65, yeah. whereas, you know, your Medicare system is is um, the, the, the public health care system for everyone. Mm. I just need to clarify that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to touch on um, sort of finally around um, just connecting more of that oxidative stress, inflammation, and the role there in terms of metabolic disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, I definitely agree with you on the, obviously, the refined seed oils, but can you just chat to us more about the connection there and what we can do to prevent that? Yeah, well, well, firstly, adiposity, just being overweight is an inflammatory disease. So, there's um, there's healthy weight gain and then there's unhealthy weight gain. And so um, everybody has something that we refer to as a personal fat threshold. And, and that is the person's ability to store subcutaneous fat. Now, fortunate or not, women have, have a great capacity to store more subcutaneous fat than men mm. and remain metabolically healthy. And, you know, this is the, you, you know, this is, this is perhaps uh, the fat that people don't want, even though they're metabolically healthy. But then it goes one step further. So the personal fat threshold is is the point at which the individual is unable to store additional subcutaneous fat. So the energy has to go somewhere. So where it goes next, it goes into the visceral fat. And then you become metabolically unhealthy. And if it progresses, then you start to store fat into the organs itself. And the, the and 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 eventually, all the organ systems and the the the, the fat storage is, is basically screaming, saying we don't want the energy, and 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 we don't know where to to store it, but the fat cells become inflamed, and when you when you actually when the pathologist looks at the fat cells, you can see um, inflammatory cytokines. Um, inflammatory macrophages and, and it's a complete inflammatory response and this is the oxidative stress that we're talking about and then it goes downstream into the blood vessels so when you look in the blood vessels again you see oxidative stress inflammation and advanced glycation so uh, when the pathologist 
looks at, at the plaque in the blood vessel wall. Again, what do they see? Inflammatory cytokines, macrophages, and foam cells. And so this is the whole idea that we're dealing with an inflammatory disease. And it's much more complicated than just telling people to eat less and exercise more. It brings us back to the quality of the food that we're eating, the macronutrients, the macronutrient mix, and also the micronutrients, which brings up the point that uh, we have to focus on um, nutrient density of foods. And so we have to consider things in our diet, superfoods, such as organ meats. We, we actually l love liver um, and um, uh, the green leafies. So um, kale, chard, spinach, um, those are perhaps uh, the plant-based superfoods. And so in this way, we're addressing this um, inflammation and oxidative stress, Steph. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because, again, obviously we're looking at the full picture and, you know, certainly not blaming something like, you know, just total cholesterol on its own like we have for five decades um, and with that being able to really emphasize the nutrition and lifestyle strategies to manage the oxidative stress which has that really positive flow on effect to um you know disease risk yeah absolutely and it's again it's it's just fun because we really think that we're we're addressing the root cause and um um you know we we still practice we're still traditional doctors and the idea is that uh, what we do and we want to teach other healthcare professionals is to actually bridge this gap between modern medicine and using food as a tool to treat and prevent chronic disease. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I look forward to you being able to spread the word to, as you, as you mentioned, not the choir necessarily so that we can touch um, more practitioners that are working with, um, you know, with those individuals that really need to hear this information. Yeah, absolutely. So we can look forward to a book um, coming out later this year. So if, um, you know, we'll obviously love to hear more about that. But where can our listeners find you online? Sure. So uh, our website is Denver's Diet Doctor. Again, that's Denver's Diet Doctor. And then um, we're all over social media, so you can look up my name. And um, we really enjoy uh, interacting when we have time. Mm. Yes, I've been having a look at your website and a lot of your blog articles. Um, quite the conversation goes on under there. I can imagine it's a, it's a bit of an, um, you know, almost like a full-time job for you to get back to everyone's questions and comments. Well, we try, but, you know, I, I still have my day job that, that I can't neglect. Of course. You still have lots of people to assist. Yes. Yeah, yeah amazing. Oh, it's been fascinating to chat with you today, and thank you for all the work that you continue to do, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks, Steph. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.